Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Journalism is never the repository of perfect truth. It can be sloppy and reckless. It can also be done with high principle and courage, with the result ultimately, if not immediately, of revealing the truth. These words are excerpted from the foreword in a book titled When Truth Mattered. This foreword was written by Alex S. Jones, who is an American journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner. The book is written by Bob Giles, who, among many, many credits, was the editor of the Akron Beacon Journal out of Akron, Ohio, at the time of the Kent State shootings. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I think, actually, I know that today's times are very much in need of journalistic truth, which may in fact frighten and offend, but in theory always enlighten each of us. With that being said, I am pleased to introduce to you Bob Giles. I am honored to welcome Bob to today's guest. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Nice to talk to you. Now, you have written a book that looks at the events of Kent State 50 years ago and the state of journalism today, 50 years later. Why? Well, because I see uh, a number of parallels between the truth-telling that was so prevalent in journalism in in 1970 and today, where uh, truth-telling has become... Uh, bound up in a lot of political uh, talk and political claims. Um, but the fact is that as we work our way through the virus, uh, we are looking for true, truthful answers to help us understand what is happening and what is not happening. And uh, like in, in, 2000, in 2020, uh, we have to turn to, to experts to help us locate and find and understand the truth. And this was similar to uh, 1970 when the Beacon Journal um, was had been um, had backgrounds of, from months of reporting on the unrest at Kent State, and our reporters knew the right people and the right questions to ask, and they were prepared to stand up to the intimidation after the shootings of officials who were seeking to spin the story to justify the National Guard's actions and to lay blame for the tragedy on the students. For those listening, and there could well be many who really don't have a handle on on the Kent State that you're talking about, can you give us a tiny blurb, if you will, about what was going on at that time? Why was it in the news? It was in the news as one of a number of college campuses where there were protests against the Vietnam War. The particular incident that touched off 
the weekend of unrest at Kent State was President Nixon's speech a couple of days earlier uh, announcing he was sending U.S. troops into Cambodia. And there were demonstrations on many many college campuses at Kent State, uh, there had been a pattern, a, a stream of protests uh, beginning in the late 60s, and we had covered them all, and we had a deep knowledge of the events and the sources. But the, the action at, at Kent State really began the day after Nixon's speech, when a group of students gathered on the campus they brought shovels, they dug a hole, they ripped a page out of the U.S. Constitution and claimed that Nixon had, had initiated an undeclared war on Cambodia and that the U.S. Constitution was, in the words of the students, was dead and they were going to bury it. And then on Friday night, uh, the students began a series of, of actions that were really sort of out of bounds. Um, Friday night, the police came to the taverns that were favorites of the students on downtown Kent. They kicked them out of the bars, and the students got angry, and they threw bottles and stones through windows. Uh, and then on Saturday, uh, at the request of the, uh, the mayor of Kent, um, in a call to the governor's office in Columbus, Ohio, they sent in the National Guard. The governor uh, was uh, James Rhodes, and uh, he came to the campus on Sunday, uh, and he was a, uh, a candidate for uh, in, a, in the primary election to take place on Tuesday, May the 3rd. He was running for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate. The, oddly enough, the president of the university was missing from the campus. He had gone off on, to an educational conference, believing that the campus was going to be peaceful during his, his absence. So when there was no president to greet the governor, and he took charge without consulting either the National Guard or the local, the local officials or the university administration. And one of his first actions in visiting the campus was to make some very demeaning comments about the Kent State students who were who were protesting. Um, he called them worse than uh, Nazi brown shirts. Kent State at that time was a university of about 19,000 students, but uh, in the context of the demonstrations that took place, only about 1,500 participated. Not all of them were students. Some of them were witnesses from other places. One of the mistakes that the governor made on Sunday was to reject a strong advice from the county prosecutor uh, who said, we should close this campus before any real damage is done. They were thinking about physical damage, not um, National Guard shooting at students, but his his rege his re rejection was based on the idea that well if you close the campus then the radicals will have won, and instead uh, he gave this order to the, the Ohio National Guard which was to break up all assemblies peaceful or otherwise, and some a reporter asked 
the, the governor, well, what, what do you consider a protest? And he said, two people walking together. Wow. Which was kind of, kind of silly, but it, it was a reflection of his mood, and it, he wanted to, he was really playing to his base uh, that week, week, that weekend. So um, that that was the that set the stage for the rally at noon on Monday. The students had announced it early, uh, and even in spite of the governor's order to break up for the guard to break up all assemblies, the students were were ready to go, and they assembled at noon and uh, began to move across the campus, and the National Guard pursued them. Uh, we, at, at the time, we had a young reporter uh, covering Kent State. He had been a student and uh, a stringer for uh, for us. Uh, he worked uh, weekends and evenings and so on. And he was our lone reporter on the campus because we didn't anticipate any violence. Okay. We had a couple of photographers as well. But uh, the, this young reporter, his name was Jeff Sallett, uh, and he uh, he knew the journalism school building, to, which was where this near where the shooting took place, and he knew that there was a, a a window in the dean's office that would give him a, a expansive view of where the students were coming from, where the guard was pushing them, and so on. So he went into the dean's office and was greeted by a woman named Margaret Brown, the secretary. And he said, "May I use your phone?" And she said, "Well, of course." And he said, "Can you can you hold the line open for me?" Uh, and she said, "Yes, I'll do that." So he began a series of reports back to our newsroom in Akron, in which he gave an eyewitness account of the movement on the campus between the guard and the students. And uh, at, at about the time that the shooting took place, um, they had exchanged the phone back and forth several times, and the, the newsroom in Akron had a very current understanding of exactly what was happening. And when the, at the moment of the shooting, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Brown was under her desk crying because she was so scared, but she hung on to that telephone and gave us a, a, a huge competitive advantage, um, which play, gave a, played off of our months of preparation uh, to uh, and, and developing the institutional background of, of what was had been happening uh, at Kent State. And so our reporters... Um, knew the right people and the right questions to ask. And they were able to brave intimidation from officials who were uh, seeking to spin the story away to justify the guards' actions and to lay blame on the students themselves. And I think we're all um, certainly very used to spin. Bob, Bob, I'm struck by your description of the amount of research, the amount of time that had been spent prior to the events of Kent State. And I, I was also struck, certainly by many things uh, in When Truth Mattered, but I was also struck by the ongoing insistence 
that you pay attention and that your reporters pay attention to the facts and not opinions. Is that is uh, it a that fair statement to say that that was really one of the core values of the paper? It was indeed the core value of the paper, and it was embedded in all of us uh, through the example uh, set by John S. Knight, who was the owner, and later became the, owner, the CEO of the large Knight newspaper chain. Uh, he had very high standards, and in order to be successful in working for the Beacon Journal, your journalism had to match uh, his values. And so this was the, the point of view, the sense, um, the commitment that our staff had going into this, uh, this weekend and this event. And so it enabled them in carrying out their daunting task, which was really to explain the reality of a world that had suddenly changed forever right before their eyes. Absolutely. Uh, it was a story that had to be told, and um, we, had, we had a quick understanding in the newsroom as we began to scramble to tell the story that this, was a uni this story had universal impact. And because they were the journalists closest to it with the most knowledge and the most expertise about it, that was, that was their job. And there, you'll understand this, that there was very little time for reflection as we scrambled to cover the story. And we struggled to get in our minds and our emotions around a brutal truth which was the freedom to speak against the Vietnam War had been shattered by the awful fact that soldiers as agents of the United States government had shot, killed, and wounded college students exercising their constitutional rights of speech and, and assembly. Let me ask you this. Um, as you talk about the way in which we were all forever changed, whether we were alive at that moment or not, forever changed by not only the reality of what happened, but I think we were all impacted upon by the realities of how the reporting was done. You talk about the fact that the administration, the, the university, the, the president of the United States, uh, many people wanted to blame others for the shootings, the woundings, the killings. What, and, and I think about it in the context of today's times, what, h how were your folks, how were you able to withstand the onslaught of no, don't, don't say this, say that, as, as you were all working to report the facts as they stood? Well, we, we were not really subject to any efforts to pre-edit our stories, and we, we valued our independence to uh, report independently uh, and ignore the intimidation that was coming all the way from the president of the United States. One of the stories that reflects on how, how the uh, intimidation was attempted and ignored in our newsroom came several weeks after the shootings. She took place on 
May the 4th, 1970, and this was in the middle of July. Immediately after the shooting, uh, the FBI sent in 100 agents to investigate. Uh, this was They were on, on assignment from the Justice Department in Washington, and eventually they came up with a, a recommendation, a, a summary of their, of their findings. Our reporter who covered the county where Kent State is was in the office of the county prosecutor one day, and the prosecutor handed him a report. He said, this is, you can't have this, but you can read it. It's, uh, it's what the FBI has found uh, in its investigation, and it's being prepared for a grand jury hearing. So uh, the phone rang as the prosecutor handed the, the report to our reporter, who just kept reading and reading and reading and memorized it, and then came back to the called me and then came back to the office and we knew we had a blockbuster story because the FBI's uh, summary said the, the National Guard was not under threat of of uh, death or being uh, seriously injured. They had no right to shoot the students, no need to shoot the students, and they didn't follow the rules for for many other things they could have done uh, in, in crowd control. So that story uh, was a blockbuster. went all over the country, and it upset many, many of our readers who believed in the war and believed in the purpose of the war, and they took great umbrage to the newspaper's initiative in publishing a story that they considered would be based on a leak from the FBI, and many of them called our office and said, "I want to, I want to cancel my subscription." And by the way, how dare you? It was that sort of anger that was coming out and, and prompting people to cancel their subscription to the newspaper. It's a so, familiar anger uh, that we hear about today, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yes. And so uh, President Nixon heard about the story, and he said to J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, I want this, I want this cut down. I, I, I want this to go away. And so um, Hoover uh, took, told his aides that, that Nixon wanted the story killed. Well, there was no killing it, but uh, Hoover did write a very nasty letter to Jack Knight, the owner of the paper. And uh, we published both the letter from Hoover and the letter from Jack Knight on page one. Uh, and the, the, um, the, uh, the findings, the record summary findings of the, of the FBI blaming the guard, basically, uh, for having killed the students without cause, became a standard explanation for that instant in which the guard opened fire. Bob, one of the recommendations that you made was that we welcome the scrutiny of the powerful. And what was really striking about that is that, you know, there's part of the population that is incensed by the scrutiny of those they believe to be powerful. 
and there is of course the a, a part of the population that seems to be hungry and scrutinizes i don't know too much enough of the powerful what are your thoughts about that well i think that uh, elected officials are servants of the people and they should be willing to respond to questions about their actions, their behavior, their decisions. And if they have nothing to hide, they can give a straightforward, truthful answer, and it will go away. Um, you know, I think honest practitioners in public office welcome probing questions. Um, if it's those who are trying to hide something that they either uh, issue a, a no comment or claim that a truthful story was fake news or they they point their fingers at reporters and call them names or characterize their their work as no good or whatever is is case but i think you can tell you can distinguish between uh the the value and and the purpose of asking hard questions of elected officials in, in a way that's respectful, and, and but is, is intended to draw out information uh, from elected officials who, after all, are hired to work for the people and the taxpayers. And so they have an obligation, in my view, to respond to those hard questions. And the reporters are trained to use documentation uh, and, and their knowledge of the uh, of the story to ask those hard questions and ask them in a fair and balanced way. In, in a twenty four seven news environment, the idea of actually researching, getting background, getting confirmation one way or the other. I would think for many reporters who were, again, up against a deadline, but it's a different deadline. It's a moment-by-moment -moment deadline. How do they do that? How do they get the background data, meet their deadline, and state the truth as they know it versus the opinion as they believe it? That is accomplished generally between the editors and the individual reporters in a conversation that tries to establish the value of the information that the reporter wants to obtain. And sometimes it does take uh, weeks, even weeks, months, to pull together all of the information to make a complete and truthful story that the that readers can trust. Uh, it, it is true that some newspapers today uh, don't have the resources anymore for for to invest in that kind of in-depth reporting, and I would say that's the truth. That's true of my own Akron Beacon Journal. In 1970, we had 150 journalists in our newsroom. Today, they have about 36. Oh my! But the counterpoint to that is the newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, who have the luxury, if you will of having deep resources and they can assign a number of of well 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 trained authoritatively gift, gifted reporters who can spend days weeks whatever to um to 
dig out dig out these stories. And if you if you read the New York Times, you'll see some familiar bylines of reporters who handle the big analysis, and and they're able to do this because they they have an authoritative understanding mm. of what's been going on, and they can put um, they can explain it to the readers in a way that is revealing and helps the readers understand exactly what has been going on. What do we need to do? Uh, I'm going to ask you a ridiculously complicated question and ask you to respond in a ridiculously short amount of time. <laughs> so I will okay. apologize in advance. What do we do as a nation to turn away from the complications of fake news versus news that is factual? Um, opinion news, which in my view is not news, versus facts. How do we turn that all around? Do we turn that all around? Well, yes, we can. Uh, we have to support uh, our local newspapers to begin with. Okay. Local news is, is eternally valuable. And more and more today, people are realizing how important their local newspaper is. Because even, even in this vi virus environment, you want to know what the local hospital is doing, who the people are who are, have passed away, how the doctors are doing, and, uh, and many other questions that, that the New York Times is not going to answer for you, uh, and NBC News is not going to answer for you, but your local newspaper is going to give you the details, and we have to support the local papers by reading it, by buying it, by, um, by paying attention to it, by responding to it with letters to the editor or questions uh, questions to the reporters who are covering the stories. That's a kind of interaction uh, going forward that is going to give new strength to the value of the local newspaper. You know, it's interesting because, and, and we're rapidly, um, our time is rapidly disappearing, but I just want to note that you recommend that people write letters to the editor, interact with reporters, and, and, and I suspect that many people don't believe that that has value, that it really does anything. Sounds like you're saying the reverse. Absolutely. Reporters, uh, you know, they're always busy, but they always welcome a call from a reader who has something serious to suggest or to, uh, to offer as a as a correction or uh, and often they they have some additional information uh, to add to what the reporter is covering many of our readers are very well informed professionally they know what's going on in their own fields and they can be authoritative sources for local reporters who are struggling to understand the science of vaccines and 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 other things that are so much in the news, but many many general reporters aren't well schooled in some of the elements of of the science or the problem facing um, them as a, as reporters and are facing the community as um, the people who want to know. Bob, how do people get more information about why truth matters? Well, I, we have a website, uh, whentruthmatter.net. 
uh, Amazon, it's a book, book is also available on Amazon.com. The website has a lot of information about the book, including a very interesting interview, video of an interview I did years ago with John Philo, the photographer who took the iconic photograph that speaks so much about what Kent State was the, of the young uh, high school girl with her arms up, screaming over the dead body of, of Jeff Miller. That, that photograph has become the, sim, the symbol, if you will, of, of Kent State. And when people see that, they think of Kent State. And it's one of the uh, symbolic photographs from, from that period. There are some from Vietnam. Uh, and then some, in more recent years, there's iconic photographs from 9-11, Previously, uh, the, um, from the Pearl Harbor, but the, the photo photographs are are certainly part of the story that is reminding us of of what has happened. And in, in the case of Kent State, it brings to mind immediately when you see that photograph, the shootings of the students by the National Guard. Pulitzer Prize-winning editor of the Akron Beacon Journal and author of When Truth Mattered, the Kent State Shootings 50 Years Later. Robert Giles, thank you so much for joining us today here on Mind Talk. Thank you, Pamela, and good luck to you and your listeners. Please stay safe. <laughs> thank you, and the same to you and yours as well. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you regularly. It is not intended to replace any work or research you may choose to do on an issue of importance to you. Mind Talk is available online at several sites, including mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. If you would like to contact me, that's Pamela, P A M E L A at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it is indeed unacceptable. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.